of Ephesians since uh, January, and uh, as we've been looking into God's Word, trying to see what uh, the Word of God has for us of how we as believers are supposed to be living together within the church. Really, that's what we've been kind of covering in uh, Ephesians chapter number 4. And uh, this morning, uh, these verses that we're going to be looking at here, um, beginning in uh, verse number 17, all the way uh, down through verse number 19, these really come right at the heel of how God tells us that as believers in Christ, how we are supposed to be living together within the church, uh, meaning the fact that um, as we are growing in unity, as we are uh, growing in love towards one another, as we are uh, learning how to walk in unity, preferring one another over ourselves, walking in that humility, um, learning how to maintain that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, um, these verses here, they kind of create kind of a, uh, a stark contrast of how believers are supposed to live and how he's going to paint kind of a graphic picture of how the unbelievers live and how we as believers should not be living in that way. You know, it's interesting how truth changes us. Um, just this last week... Uh, we went uh, to Mishawaka, my wife and I and daughter, and as we're driving there, uh, our daughter Evelyn, she kind of started uh, falling asleep, and she was a little groggy, and uh, we pulled into uh, Chuck E. Cheese, and she really likes going to Chuck E. Cheese, winning the tickets, all that kind of stuff. So we got out of the car, and we get her out, and she's like, you know, kind of doing this number. And we start walking up to Chuck E. Cheese's, and we're like, oh, do you know where we are? And she's like, you know. Well, we approach the front doors of Chuck E. Cheese, and she sees that goofy-looking mouse that's on the, on the front doors. And immediately her eyes widen and she goes Chuck E. Cheese holy mackerel <laughs> the truth of being at Chuck E. Cheese had actually changed her behavior and her attitude in in how she was was acting and it's interesting how the truths of God's word change us and they should change us they should be changing us and I believe Paul here kind of gives us a a difference, a reality of, of looking how believers are supposed to live and how unbelievers live their life. Now, as we go through these verses, uh, chances are maybe uh, you have been caught up in a pattern of one of these types of behaviors, um, but it should not be characteristic of your life because you've been changed uh, in Jesus Christ. And so the, the message here that Paul is trying to get across here to the believers that are living here in Ephesus is believers must have a different walk. Um, and when we talk about that word walk, it, it, it's talking about a different way of life, a different lifestyle. Uh, the way that your conversation of your life, of how it's, how it's being lived out. And Paul says believers are supposed to live completely different from unbelievers. And so our text here, we're going to look at five different things here uh, that we must not follow or pattern our lives after uh, in the text. And so we should really strive to, to, to find out what does God's word have to say of how am I supposed to walk 
in the Christian life. So let's take a look at a few of these things. Number one, uh, we are to no longer walk in the futility of their minds. Look what he says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now remember, here in this church at Ephesus, there were Jew and Gentile because Paul calls them into one new man uh, there in Ephesians chapter number two. But there were Gentiles living there and Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's using that, that, that phrase there, the Gentiles. It's almost a way of saying the Gentiles live an unbelieving type of life. They live a paganistic type of life. And he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In what way? In the futility of their mind. That word futility is the same word that is used 36 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's translated as vanity. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, Solomon wrote, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a very depressing book because really at the end of life, it's like, what is life? There's nothing to life. There's, it's just emptiness. Because without God, life is empty. Without meaning in life, of having purpose through Jesus Christ, life is empty. And so vanity or futility means breath or vapor. It refers to anything as transitory, frail, or lacking in substance. In Ecclesiastes here, we learn that Solomon had tried to find satisfaction through everything, through knowledge and through wealth and all that uh, life could give him. Everything that, that he could ever want, he had it all. But yet... At the end of it, he said, all of life is nothing but vanity. He had the pleasures of music and art and women. But yet he said, my life is empty. It's vanity. He had houses and lands with beautiful gardens and ponds. But none of it brought any fulfillment to his life whatsoever. He observed that even if you have all of these things, you live a very few years and you die. In Ecclesiastes 2.17, Solomon said, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Have you ever tried to grasp wind with your hand? That's the picture that Solomon is painting for us as life is like that. It's just vanity. One good way to, to kind of illustrate this is, this is my daughter's. I asked her if I could borrow it. She said yes. Um, but, you know, soap bubbles. A child runs after soap bubbles, and what does it get them? I mean, it's gone. Nothing. And Paul says, we're not supposed to be living our life chasing after Vanity chasing after emptiness, soap bubbles. There's nothing to it. Because at the end of your life, what do you have? Nothing. And he says, we're not supposed to walk that way in the fertility of your mind. You see, many unbelievers live for purposes. Sometimes even very noble purposes. But if they do not take God and eternity into consideration, what is gained? 
nothing. You see, you live a few years and with help with a few people, you may, you may uh, help with some noble causes, but at the end of that, you die. Uh, we were just at uh, um, the Goshen Mennonite uh, College uh, yesterday, and there's a, like a music conservatory there, and they have some plaques of people that gave all kinds of stuff. Now, I don't know who those people are, and I'm sure they gave with a noble cause, but you, you travel to uh, graveyards and you see people's, people's lives, you know, when they were born, when they were die, everything that represents their life is but by a dash. And you say, what did they live their whole life for? What was their purpose of their life? If it wasn't for the intent of God and eternity in mind, it is nothing but vanity. And Paul says we are not supposed to live that way in the fertility of our mind with vain emptiness in our mind. And so Paul is saying, don't live that way. Don't live as if God did not exist. Don't live as if Christ did not die for your sins. Don't live as if there were no judgment or no heaven or no hell. Don't live in the futility of your mind. I wonder why the psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse number 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Because knowing one day your life will be cut off, you will die. You will stand before God, is what Hebrews 9.27 teaches us. So how do you want to spend the rest of your life? My dad just turned 65 on September 1st, and I think Tim did as well. Um, no, not 65, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Tim. <laughs> you guys have the same birthday, but not the same year. I told my dad, I said, well, dad, don't you know, because I talked to him on the phone, and he says, yeah, I'm getting to be an old man now. I said, dad, come on. Don't you know 65's the new 25? And he's like, yeah, right. Uh. But you think about it, your life is so short. What is, what, what is the whole value of it? If it's not living for God, not living for eternity, it's nothing but vanity. Knowing that you have a short amount of time left, maybe there's, some, maybe there's something that you need to think about of reestablishing some goals in your life. Maybe you need to start living in light of eternity. Maybe establishing a regular time alone with God through reading his word and through prayer. Maybe you've spent your whole life just spinning your wheels, grasping after things that have no value. And maybe you need to start getting some priorities straightened out. Paul says, don't live this way in the vanity of your mind. Don't just drift through life as unbelievers do, living for the next momentary pleasure. Don't live in the futility of your mind. Live with godly purpose in light of eternity. And so if we're going to have a different walk, our walk begins with how we live. And we should not be living in the futility of our mind. Look at the second thing he says here. No longer walk in the darkness of their understanding. So they are darkened in their understanding. This phrase here is similar to living with the futility of your mind, but he says it goes further in explaining why they live that way. Why do they live in vanity? Because their, their understanding is darkened. You see, when man's sin, it plunged the whole human race into darkness. 
and alienation from God. People's minds were cut off from knowing God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 43 and 44, he's speaking to people who were blinded by the darkness, and he said, you cannot accept my teaching because you people are from your father, the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul wrote, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Romans 1.21 says their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, when sin came into this world, the lights went out spiritually. And Paul says we are not supposed to be living as the Gentiles do in the darkness of their understanding. Because this darkness, I believe, goes even further than just spiritual ignorance of the truth. It shows us the very nature and the heart of lost men. They love the darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, Jesus said, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I believe many times the reason why we fall into patterns of sin and we do not want to change, it's because we love our darkness and we love our sin. And the light reproves us of our sin and it reproves us of our darkness. And Paul says we don't need to be living that way in that darkness of understanding. Don't walk around with a darkened understanding. Walk in the light as he himself is in the light, is what uh, we are told in the book of John. Be renewed and transformed in the spirit of your mind. Don't just coast in spiritual neutrality. Become a biblical thinker about every issue that you face in life. You know, all you have to do is just watch the evening news, uh, just see what's going on in this world, and you can see the darkness. And we as believers in Christ were called to reprove darkness. And so we should be thinking biblically, having our minds set on things that are biblical, things that are eternal, not just coasting through life. So we should no longer walk in the darkness of their understanding. Let's look at a third thing he says here. We're to no longer walk in their alienation from the life of God. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. I believe this just further shows why they live in the futility of their minds. Paul says, don't live as unbelievers do, who live and walk in the alienation from the life of God. Because of what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, remember? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. They lack new life from God. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of eliminating sinful behavior and replacing it with moral behavior. 
You see, becoming a Christian is a matter of receiving a new life from God. As Jesus said in John 3, 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, you can live your whole life going to a church meeting, saying prayers, living a good life, and not even be a Christian. I would say that there are many people in a church setting somewhere today, maybe possibly even in this room today, that you've lived a good moral life, but yet you have not turned from darkness to light. You have not received Christ as your Savior. You've not repented of your sins and received Christ. Does that happen? Absolutely. And so we are not to live in a way that of alienation from the life of God. So if you find yourself in that type of situation, the remedy for you is to repent, turn from your sins, believe the gospel. Paul is saying to us that our believers don't live as unbelievers do, being excluded or alienated from the life of God. I have a book in my office, and basically it's the, the, the way that the book is, is played out is Christians who live as if there is no God. That's how they live their life. Paul says, don't live that way. You are supposed to have a different type of walk. Make sure that you have eternal life through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says a fourth thing here. No longer walk in their ignorance and their hard hearts. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now this phrase here, you see that the ignorance that is in them, this explains why they live in alienation to God. Because they are ignorant. They do not know God personally. That word ignorance simply means to be without knowledge. We get our word agnostic from that word. And it's pretty ironic that people that claim to be agnostic often boast of their great knowledge as it were some knowledge that led them to their no knowledge of God. But really, their no knowledge of God is already in them because they are ignorant and they do not know God personally. You see, the person who is hard of heart ignores God and his commands. And he says here, Paul traces their spiritual ignorance to something else that is within them. The hardness of their hearts. And they ignore God and his commands. He refuses to bow before God as the sovereign Lord. And the hardness of heart results in not knowing God. That spiritual ignorance due to sin is why unbelievers are cut off from the very life of God. And so Paul says we don't need to be living this way in the ignorance and hard-heartedness to God. This means that people are not supposed to live this way because we have truth. We have the word of God. We are to be obeying the word of God. One of the things I think is plaguing the church today is, uh, I, was, I was talking to a, a couple and uh, just counseling with them and trying to help them through some marital advice. 
And one of the things the, the, the man said was, you know, um, I cannot love my wife as Christ loved the church uh, because I really don't love her yet. I said, okay, that's kind of weird. I mean, God never says, you know, the feelings have to be there in order to obey God's word. Um, and he was saying, well, you know, I, I'm having a hard time with this. And I said, well, I said, you want me to tell you how you can love your wife? Do the dishes. Do the laundry. <laughs> right? Um, those simple acts are loving acts that you, even though you may not be like, oh, well, I don't feel love here. Well, God didn't say you had to feel it in order to obey it. Okay? God's word basically says we need to obey his word, to obey the truths of scripture. And so God commands us, don't live any way you want to please don't live as your life as being ignorant of the truth of God's word. Don't have hardness of heart. Paul says don't live that way as, a, as an unbeliever. You should be seeking daily to know the living God in a more intimate way. You should be submitting to God in every area of your life. Don't let sin harden your heart and produce doubts and spiritual ignorance. That's why uh, when we were reading here in Ephesians, it says, you know, one Lord, one faith, one God over all, all in all. Um, Paul's trying to get across to us that God himself should be sovereign over every area of your life. There should be no secret rooms, no hidden doors, no closed off areas in your life that are closed off to God. God wants to be sovereignly reigning over every area of your life. And we can live like the unbelievers do when we say, well, God, you know what? That area is off limits. I'm not going to give you that. And our hearts become hard towards the Lord. Here's the fifth thing, what he says. He says, we are to no longer walk in their callous sensuality and impurity. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This verse here in verse 19 describes the final result of this downward spiral. It begins here living in the futility of your minds and it continues in this downward spiral. And he says this hardness of their heart, it's become callous. The word callous simply means to cease to feel pain. And so spiritually, we can apply it in means to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul spoke of those who were seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And here in Ephesians 4.19, because of the hardness of their hearts, they have become callous. And so both of those descriptions, searing with a branding iron and our hearts becoming callous, becoming so hard, it gives a good description of the conscience and the hardened, calloused heart and how God views them. You see, the first time a person commits a sin, he sometimes thinks, you know, I can get away with this. I'll just do it just this once. But after he does it, his conscience bothers him. 
He feels guilty. But the next time it's a bit easier and he rationalizes it by his thinking. Well, others do worse, they might say. But each time it becomes easier and easier to sin. Why? Because their heart is becoming hardened. It's becoming calloused. They don't feel the, the embarrassment or the shame no longer. And it becomes easier and easier. Their, their, their conscience is seared with a hot iron. Turn over to Romans chapter number one real quickly here. Because I want to show you a parallel that I think is very interesting. Uh, the way that Paul is describing the uh, unbeliever's walk and what God uh, shows as people uh, the way that they live. In Romans chapter 1, I want to show you three verses here in one phrase that stands out in these three verses. Look at verse number 24 with me. Romans 1, 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Look at verse number 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Look at verse number 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. Now look back here in Ephesians 4.19. Look what he says here. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here it's describing the, the same thing. God says, this is how I see the sinner and I've given them up. But here in Ephesians 4.19, it's describing from the sinner's perspective. And he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When we see that word sensuality, it refers to a person who casts off all restraint. And has no regard even for public decency. Paul says this is not how you are supposed to walk. This is not how you are supposed to live. It is to be openly, shamelessly in violation of God's moral standards. In this context here in Ephesians 4. Impurity with greediness probably refers to an unquenchable appetite for sexual sin. And Paul says, don't live that way. You are not an animal. You are not supposed to be living as the pagans do, the Gentiles. You have been called to a new way of living. Don't live that way. Now look at that phrase there. He says, greedy to practice. This thing, this to practice, this is making an occupation out of impurity. Pursuing sensuality and greed feeds on itself. People that are caught within any type of, of, of sexual type of sin, they, they pursue after it in their own lust and they feed off of that because it gives them what they need. And so they practice it. They make a habit of practicing it. Paul is saying this. 
in this pursuing it, he says, to practice every kind of impurity. Because once what was new and exciting becomes kind of dull and eh. So we got to find new ways and so we pursue after it. And so the sinner has to seek new depths of perversion. Giving yourself over to sensuality and impurity becomes enslaving. I can't tell you how many people are enslaved. We have uh, people, Christians, that are enslaved to pornography. Christians that are enslaved in, into some type of impurity, sexual impurities. How did it get like that? Because they're walking in the futility of their mind. Living their life as though if God does not exist. And living their life as ever they want to please. Grasping after everything that comes into life. With no regard for God. Paul says don't live that way. Because you've been called to a new way of living. Jesus said that we must cut off such type of sin. In Matthew chapter 5, 29, he gives this way of illustrating this. And he says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Because it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one hand than to have both hands cast in the lake of fire. He says, if your foot offends you, cut it off. He says, if your eye offends you, cut it off. You have to take drastic measures against sin. They say when uh, people do any type of pruning of bushes and things like that. I've pruned a few things before. Now, I'm not a gardener by any means, but I know that you should cut things back. But did you know people that prune, that actually prune, they actually cut it way, way back to almost the thin, it's almost like, boy, that thing's going to die. But yet... Because they've cut it back so much, more growth is able to happen. And you know, I, I picture this, this thing, way, the way Jesus is describing it. I mean, bloody stumps. Mary just had eye surgery uh, on, uh, was it Thursday or Friday? Tuesday. Boy, I got my days all mixed up here. Um, and, and, you know, you think about Jesus, he's talking about plucking your eye out. I mean, can you imagine seeing somebody without an eye and they're just, I mean, cut it back. Take drastic measures against sin. Because Paul says you've been called to a new way of living. Now, look at this. This is amazing. Look at verse number 20, because this is where we're going to pick up next week. And I love this. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, church, if God has called us to a new way of living, it's through the pattern of Christ. It's a new way of living. Not trying to live my old life in the power of whatever, saying, well, I'm gonna to try to be good and moral. No. A new way of living. You have been resurrected to new life if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Paul's going to pick that up in the next verses. Let's pray together.